It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. As is usually the case with our podcast episodes, Jason does not know what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, the same is true with this episode. So here I am just sitting in a dark room in my mind, not knowing what's about to happen next, which is par for the course for this time in life is who the hell knows what's going to happen next anyway. So I suppose in a way, Whitney, the format and the content and the ethos of our podcast is perfect for these insane roller coasterish, kaleidoscopic, ever-changing times in humanity. That is true. That is very true. And that reminds me a lot of what we put into our new free ebook. So if the listener has not downloaded this yet, you can go to our website, wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And we have a brand new ebook in there that you can download for free called From Calm to Chaos. And we'll also be linking that in the show notes for this episode. If you didn't know this yet, every single episode we do has show notes, which includes a transcript and a list of all the resources we include just to make it super easy for you to find information. If you want to dig deeper, if you're curious about anything we're talking about, and From Calm to Chaos will be linked there at podcast.wellevator.com. And numerous sections of that ebook, we point out the fact that things feel extra uncertain right now, but really this is highlighting our awareness of uncertainty, which is always there. It's just we're not always as aware of it as we are right now. And sometimes that feels a little depressing. And sometimes (laughs) I feel like it's a little relieving, like, hey, It feels really bad right now, but maybe it's no worse than usual, aside from the fact that many people are getting sick. That is the worst part of this. But for those of us who are healthy, I think a lot of us feel like our biggest issues right now are anxiety and stress. And that really ties into the topic today, which I know Jason's going to get really fired up about. We actually touched upon it briefly in the previous episode to this one, if you haven't listened to that yet. We actually went over our ebook. So if you're curious about the ebook, but you're not quite ready to download something, you can go listen to a podcast episode. And we we go through a lot of the main talking points of that. But it actually comes up a lot on this show. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today ties into hustle culture. And I know that Jason gets really fired up about this. So I'm kind of excited. Like I like it when you get fired up, Jason. <laughs> well, it's guaranteed I'm going to get fired up about this episode because I think it's something that needs to be deconstructed, examined, and decoded. And I remember the very first time, Whitney, this is going to be a throwback for a second, but bear with me. The first time I ever heard about hustle culture or the concept of hustle was actually way back 20 years ago, my final year of college. I went to Columbia in Chicago And I got, for anyone I got, I received, I finished, I completed a uh, bachelor in arts degree with a concentration, a major in marketing communications and a minor in theater. And one of my favorite teachers, my senior year at Columbia, his name was Haji. I believe he wrote a book. Yeah, he did. He wrote a book called Knock the Hustle. 
Knock the Hustle. We'll link to it in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. And I remember this was about five years before he published this book. I remember him talking about hustle culture in the advertising and marketing and PR industries and how toxic it was and how deleterious and demeaning and devoid of humanity, that mentality that he observed in the advertising industry. He, for me, was a writing coach. He was a confidant. He was one of my favorite teachers. And he's the first person 20 years ago in the year 2000, I remember talking about the downside to the hustle mentality. And then five years later in 05, he published this book, which I have yet to read. I actually want to pick up a copy now that we're talking about it from uh, from an online retailer about knocking the hustle, about reexamining the toxic capitalistic, corporate-driven mentality of win at all costs. And I remember he was just the first dude to bring my awareness to that. That was two decades ago. Have you ever heard of the term woke capitalism? I have, and it makes me cringy as fuck (laughs) when I hear that term. What is your definition of that, and what's the context in which you've heard about that term? Well, so I just want to preface what I'm going to say by there's all kinds of greenwashing that's gone on for the last several decades in terms of companies talking about their sustainable business initiatives or their conscious initiatives to be more humanistic and have a more humanistic, sustainable approach. Obviously, Whitney, you've been focusing on sustainability and eco-friendly living a lot longer than I have. And I feel that certainly in some ways more in your wheelhouse than it is in mine. But when you say woke capitalism, I often think about greenwashing and kind of sustainability initiatives that don't really have a lot of foundational elements behind them. But then I also think about certified B corporations and that there are actual, I suppose, certifications or labels that corporations can get about actually reviewing sustainable business practices and getting those verified. But when I hear woke capitalism, I guess I'm just so sensitive to how language is being leveraged in the in the capitalistic space right now of like, yeah, we care about, you know, human beings regardless of color and gender and blah 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 and you know, we donate 1% of our sales to pygmy bats, albino pygmy bats in Malaysia and I don't know, it triggers me because I often feel that companies especially right now are doing things because it's performative and we talked a lot about that in the um in some of the previous episodes about cultural appropriation and black lives matter that there's a huge gap between performative idealism in the corporate world and actually giving a shit. So that's my long way of saying, I don't know, when I hear woke capitalism, it just sounds like some more woo-woo bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely coming up a lot and it has come up a number of times in the past. I pulled up an article that had a definition of it and actually this was uh, last year, but they were referencing some advertisements like one by Pepsi and another one by Gillette and using them as examples of woke capitalism. And then they defined it based on Wikipedia posts, which is how woke is a political term of African-American origin that refers to a perceived awareness of issues concerning social justice and racial justice. It is derived from the African-American vernacular English expression, stay woke, whose grammatical aspect refers to a continuing awareness of these issues. 
And so woke capitalism refers to the capitalist profit-driven approach followed by corporations who are capitalizing on the stir and population of social movements to achieve their ends. Interesting. It's hard to gauge these things, right? Because major multinational corporations are such gigantic entities with so many human beings and employees and moving parts and facilities that it's difficult to say whether a company is woke, right? I think there are individuals that can work for and comprise some elements of a capitalistic structure that could be more woke than others. But to say a company is woke, it's a little bit tough, right? Because it brings up the idea of waste. It brings up the idea of how the factories are powered or or how they're producing things like you know, we talk a lot about Tesla here on the podcast because Whitney obviously is a huge fan. I like a lot of their practices. But even in the electric vehicle industry, as an example, you know, cobalt mining is still a very contentious subject because there's a lot of human rights issues with cobalt mining and a lot of dangerous practices in the mining industry. And it's one of those things where we always have to ask ourselves, I think, is a company doing their best? Are we doing our best? And there's no such thing as perfection. It's not, if we're going to be in a capitalist structure and companies are going to pre- be producing goods and services for our consumption, I don't know that it's possible to be 100% damage-free on the earth. I don't know that it is, you know, in terms of waste or composting or soil erosion or emissions or, I don't know, it, it's a tough thing. It, it almost seems like the more that we try and shift our practices and initiatives, there's always more to do. There's always more to optimize. So I I do give some corporations the benefit of the doubt when I see that they're authentically trying. But again, Whitney, I'm just leery of big corporations, I suppose, waving the banner of wokeness because to me, I don't know, again, having been in marketing and advertising and worked for some big advertising agencies in the, the early part of my career, you know, profit's still the motive. Yeah. Well, we're going to dig in a, deep into a lot of the things that you're skimming the surface of right now. And the inspiration for the subject came from an article I read, which I think you may have sent me, Jason. Correct me if I'm wrong. Started with this article called The End of the Girl Boss is Here. Is that what you sent me? I did send that to you last week. Yes. Right. So I read that and then I kind of went down a rabbit hole. And Speaking of the rabbit hole, the author of that article, it's a wonderful article on medium.com. And of course, we'll link to that in the show notes at wellevator.com. Highly, highly recommend it because as a woman, a millennial woman and an entrepreneur, I feel like the word girl boss has been so appealing. And when you really start to dig into it, it helps me understand why. And a lot of the things that I want to bring up today actually are very related to millennials. And again, as we've said in the past, Jason isn't technically a millennial. He's kind of a few years outside of that realm. Uh, but he still, I feel like, kind of identify well, not identifies, but in the term that you are very millennial-like in a lot of your behavior and your lifestyle. Would you say that's accurate? I guess I have one foot in my actual generation, which is Generation X. And a lot of my colleagues, friends, you being my business partner, best friend, assistants, people I work with. But I mean, you go on down the line, I guess a high concentration of them, yeah, are millennials. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm curious what you thought when you read this article, Jason. I just wanted to point out that the author of it, Lee Stein, is one of my current dream guests. She just came out with a book called Self-Care that I really want to read. I think it just came out the day of this recording, actually. I'm keeping my eye on it. I have a long queue of books, but that'll be on my reading list very soon. And she's just incredibly eloquent. So I'm just putting it out there. Every once in a while, I like to throw out a name on the show (laughs) of somebody that we hope to have as a way of kind of manifesting it. But Jason, do you remember much about that article and what inspired you to send it to me? Yeah, without it being right in front of me and having read it over a week ago, I think the big thing that jumped out at me was the feminist movement kind of adopting a lot of white cisgendered male corporate ideals in a mad dash to gain power and get ahead. The concept of feminism had just sort of subverted a lot of these overworking, hard-charging, success-at-all-costs, smash-the-glass-ceiling type of thing that men had been doing for you know God knows how long, and that women felt this extra pressure to to be successful and be their own bosses and prove that they could do better than men, obviously because of the massive amount of power the patriarchy has, and that there's almost for women and and people of color in corporate settings or in entrepreneurial settings to work that much harder to get ahead. And that was the part that was interesting to me was, you know, the downward slope of this that we we talk a lot and we have talked a lot about on this podcast in previous episodes about the downside of the hard work mentality that there's this, again, in my opinion, very kind of stilted, pedantic mentality of just, you know, just outwork everyone and you'll get ahead. But the girl boss movement, in my opinion, reading this article, it was just highlighting kind of the dark aspects of it, of women burning themselves out and losing touch with taking good care of themselves and and some aspects of their femininity and trying to get ahead in a white male dominated corporate hierarchy losing some elements of who you are as a woman. I thought it was a great and fantastic read. Agreed. I highly recommend it. And we encourage the listener to read it as well. It's like a 10-minute read. Uh, One thing I really like about medium.com as a resource is they always tell you approximately how long it takes to read their articles. (laughs) I usually read several articles from Medium every single day. And I try not to rush through them because they're usually very juicy. And My favorite line, or the most interesting, I should say, regarding this episode from that article is this phrase, this, yeah, it's just a line from that. And Lee says, woke capitalism lets the elites maintain the status quo while paying lip service to the demands of activists and as ethical consumers, millennials get to feel like they're making a difference every time they go shopping. It's kind of like pandering so people leave you alone. It's like, oh, we'll donate a higher percentage of our profits to the polar bears so you guys are appeased and you know, so Greenpeace leaves us alone or or we'll stop using fur in our fall fashion line because PETA protested or it's interesting because I think if we're going to examine the psychology behind this, if a corporation changes their product development cycle or how they're sourcing their ingredients or how they're producing their products, it's almost giving, in this case, millennials that are more aware of 
the power of their purchasing and, and companies they want to support that are more ethical. I think that when we buy something that is perceived as green or ethical or sustainable or progressive, it's almost like we're purchasing things, right, that are reflective of our own, not just our own personal values, but our sense of who we are. Like, hey, look, I bought like the greenest car on the market, or hey, look, I bought a, you know, recycled leather jacket. It's almost like we talk about virtue signaling, and that's a huge topic right now on social media is virtue signaling. And I think this part of like conscious capitalism or the whitewashing in capitalism is virtue signaling that whoever buys their shit is also woke, right? It's like, no, I did a good thing, guys. Look where I spent my money. I did a good thing. Absolutely. I think that we are very driven to do good things, right? And part of what I took away from that article as well is that that can be very manipulative. And in general, marketing is always kind of on that fine line of, are are you helping somebody? Are you manipulating them? And I think that what I kind of was interested in there too was how, you know, in one of our episodes, we talked about toxic masculinity. As I was reading that article, I started to think about toxic femininity and how, because as you were saying, women are often striving so hard to prove themselves. It, I think that that hustle is very appealing because we want to be seen as just as powerful as men and successful as men. And sometimes that drives us to do things that might not be great for our mental health or the well-being of people around us. And that article and, and other articles that I kind of discovered as I went down the rabbit hole were talking about the workplace culture of a lot of these female-driven girl boss environments and how there can be racism in there and there can be so much uh, manipulation of the employees or taking advantage of them or perhaps putting out a message that really is in alignment with the work culture there. And it was talking about the wing as an example, which is a co-working space in some cities like Los Angeles that I've been to and, and how there was some kind of bad things happening behind the scenes of that business. But I was also thinking about the environment there and how it felt very elitist in a lot of ways. You know, I remember feeling like it was, I don't even know if it's going to exist anymore after COVID, but whether it was COVID or not, that business might not have been sustainable because of some of the things that were happening there and in their culture. And on one hand, I mean, that place kind of represented that girl boss mentality. Like that was that was a huge part of its marketing. And again, maybe still is. I haven't looked it up recently. But I remember going in there and feeling two things. One is I walk in and it was designed to appeal to that millennial female solopreneur like myself or small business owner. And it, it was like the color scheme of pinks and all of these typical millennial female colors and and like the nice looking couches and everything just looked Instagram worthy. And they had like a cool cafe with plant-based options and an indoor and outdoor space. And, and that was like so nice. But then I was like simultaneously feeling Ugh, like I walk in here and I feel the the need to prove myself. I feel like I have to dress up to go work in this environment because I'm going to be seen and I have to like take nice pictures if I'm here because everything just looks like it's perfectly curated. And then it was 
pretty pricey. And it was definitely something that I didn't quite feel comfortable paying for. And they didn't offer free trials or anything, which I always thought was like a little strange. And they had like long waiting lists. It kind of reminded me of Soho House, Jason. It was just like this Ah. this kind of elitist work environment, which appeals to me on some levels. But as I was reading that article, I started to think, wow, like there's a lot of elements of this that end up making me feel like I'm in the comparison trap all the time. You know, like you're surrounded by all these successful people and you're like constantly measuring yourself against them and how they look and how old they are and how successful they are and what are they getting done and, you know, how much money do they have and blah, blah, blah. And, and that for me personally is triggering. So I kind of, I mean, for the most part, I enjoyed going to the wing. It it evoked a lot of like good emotions. But I think by reading that article, I wondered what those emotions are really about. And that's what I wanted to explore a little bit further. And that led me through this hustle culture mentality, right? From the, what are the roots of girl boss beyond the feminist movement side of it? I found a few other articles, one in which I'm so excited to get to, but I have to read some others before I get to that. There is one article that I just like couldn't believe what I was reading. It's so juicy and so articulate. And so I highly recommend for you, Jason, and the listener to check out these articles when we'll put them in the show notes. Well, that's just a big old tease, though. (laughs) I'm going to get to it. Don't worry. I'm warming up. So yeah, uh, when you say surprising <laughs> and juicy, and they're like, and then just go to the show notes, I'm like, but wait. <laughs> All right. Well, another one of the articles I was reading that wasn't directly related to that first one by Lee Stein, another one that I just happened to be reading was from this website, tinylittlebusiness.com. And the article is Better Prospect, a Sphere of Influence Manifesto. And I thought this was fascinating, some of the points about influencer culture, which Jason and I have talked about too, and how that intersects with hustle. And the author said, it's a culture of short-sightedness, not helped that it has become a badge of honor to worship at the altar of hustle. The winners get to insert another coin and continue to play, and the losers disappear in the screaming noise, rendered invisible and irrelevant. Jeez. And this is what I'm saying. It's like mm. when in these environments, like that girl boss environment, I, sp- I mean, part of it has to do with LA culture in general. Absolutely. Then you add in the influencer culture and the girl boss culture. And there's a lot of this like winner and loser mentality. And this is like so many people I think are attracted to hustle and partake in the hustle simply because of that fear that they will no longer be able to play and they'll be invisible and they'll be irrelevant. And that's part of the huge danger of hustle culture is that you feel like you're constantly striving to keep up and it's incredibly exhausting. It's a tough thing because I think that there's inherently as an entrepreneur, there's a mentality of working more. It's a cliche, but this phrase always sticks with me is entrepreneurs are the only people that are willing to work 80 hours a week so that they don't have to work 40 for someone else, right? So there's an embedded mentality, I think, when one chooses to or feels compelled. I mean, some people feel deeply compelled to run their own business. They, they almost feel like as it's not a choice. There's a compulsion or, or something hurtling them into running their own business. But regardless of what the motivation is, I think there's almost an embedded mentality of working harder to prove oneself because one has created their own business, right? Whitney, it's it's not just 
perhaps eschewing the nine to five or eschewing a, a weekly paycheck to start one's own business and the inherent pressures that come from that. Anybody who's listening who has been in business for themselves certainly knows those pressures. But then, as you said, you have all these other layers on top of it, which is social media presence or being considered an influencer or content creator, uh, then being a woman or a person of color or a person who's been marginalized in society, aka not a person who's a white cisgendered man, anyone else who's outside of that and feeling extra pressure to prove themselves. And then on top of that, you have living in a big city like Los Angeles, which is inherently a brutally competitive environment. It's no wonder there are so many health issues around burnout, fatigue, adrenal fatigue, mental health, depression, anxiety, and suicide. It's like, as we're breaking this down, it's like no fucking wonder. Absolutely. And you hear more and more of those cases coming out. And one of them was, and again, this is all speculation, but the first one I think about is Steve Bing. And I remember when I heard the news about his passing, which I haven't followed since it happened. I don't know if you have, Jason, but he was a very beloved person as far as I'm aware and successful. And it seemed like he had it all. And when Jason and I were discussing his passing, it was like, hmm, like, did he choose to end his own life? It it seemed like he did. And if so, like what motivates somebody like him to do that? And what's going on behind the scenes that we can't see? Is it depression? Is it burnout? Is it anxiety, stress, fear, all of these different emotions? And the toll that COVID is having on people in addition to that. I mean, I feel like hustle culture is changing a lot and for better or maybe for worse during COVID because it's changed our relationship to how we work. Absolutely. And I also think this time during COVID, this time of quarantine is for not just me, and and we've alluded to kind of some shifts in my creative life and my career focus, so many people I talk to, not just in the well-being, wellness, food, health industry, but I feel like a lot of people are right, are taking time to re-examine their habits and their compulsions and their motivations and why, not just what they are doing. And I don't mean this in a luxurious sense because people are really struggling financially right now, but amidst the financial struggle and unemployment and economic downturn and the roller coaster ride that is the stock market amidst all of that i feel it's important for people to ask not just what i ought to do work wise or business wise or career wise but why am i doing it right really slowing down to ask why absolutely and i want to dive further into that but i just pulled up an article about steve bing from the hollywood reporter which i feel like is a pretty reputable source and this was i think released today as of the time we're recording and I'm just scanning it. I'm not reading it in depth because we're recording right now. But one line that really summarizes a lot of what I'm saying, A, it's it's basically concluded that he did commit suicide, which I think was implied from the beginning. But as time went on, they, I guess, confirmed it. And in a paragraph here, it says, several who were close to Bing say they did not fear he was suicidal, but acknowledge he was contending with a sea of troubles depression, serious drug use, family rifts, and rumored money pressures, and perhaps the toll of a pandemic on a single man who did not care to be alone. Mm. It's a lot of layers. And it also shows you that nobody knows the proverbial demons that another person is struggling with. 
on a base level, we have these images of Steve Bing, who, from what I read, you know, he inherited five hundred million dollars on his on his eighteenth birthday. I mean, can you imagine? That's mind blowing to me to be eighteen years old and be gifted from your inheritance five hundred million dollars. I mean, that's that's almost unfathomable. So we could say, "Wow, how fortunate!" But we have no idea how that shaped him as a human being the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is interesting, too. One of the final paragraphs of that article says, In the days before the pandemic closed Los Angeles down, a source says Bing was seen dozing at Crossroads Kitchen, a popular Melrose Avenue vegan restaurant in which he was investor, an investor. How interesting. Dozing. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, it's a really sad thing when people feel compelled to end their lives because of their struggles. But it's a personal decision as well. We'll never truly understand because they're not here to speak for themselves. And whether that's connected to the hustle culture or anything that we're talking about here, I guess it doesn't necessarily mean if that was part of, if that was his motive, Steve Bing's. But I think that that's what comes up for me and my curiosity. And I think a lot of people get curious about that. It's like, what pressures is somebody facing or what demons is somebody facing to go to such an extreme measure. And I think that hustle culture can really be incredibly detrimental. And I see it a lot, especially in the millennials. And that's a huge part of what I want to talk about here. So another article I read was from the New York Times. And it's called, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) i mean for if you just remove young people from that like why is anyone pretending right wow well maybe i mean i think a lot of this research i've done has been targeted towards millennials because it is a big issue with people in that age range myself included but it certainly isn't limited to them. And this article actually came out in 2019. So this is over a year old, like a year and a half old. So some really great lines in here. I'm just going to read them out loud for us to discuss. Hustle culture. It is obsessed with striving, relentless positive, devoid of humor, and once you notice it, impossible to escape. It's glorifying ambition, not as a means to an end, but as a lifestyle. The concept of productivity has taken on an almost spiritual dimension. Aimed at a younger generation of people who are seeking permission to follow their dreams. In the new work culture, enduring or even merely liking one's job is not enough. Workers should love what they do and then promote that love on social media. It creates the assumption that the only value we have as human beings is our productive capability, our ability to work rather than our humanity. Spending time on anything that's non-work related has become a reason to feel guilty. The vast majority of people beating the drums of hustle mania are not the people doing the actual work. They're the managers, financiers, and owners. Myths about overwork persist because they justify the extreme wealth created for a small group of elite techies. Millennials were raised to expect that good grades and extracurricular overachievement would reward them with fulfilling jobs that feed their passions. 
Instead, they wound up with precarious, meaningless work and a mountain of student loan debt. Well, damn. I mean, it's the word that comes to mind is bleak. It just feels bleak. And it's interesting that there's the correlation between hustle and work and productivity being treated as almost like a spiritual experience or elevated to that level. And the, the first thing that came to my mind is a quote from Alan Watts. And he said, stop measuring your days in degrees of productivity, yet instead in degrees of presence. And it is an interesting thing, Whitney, because at the end of the day, or end of one's life, really, if we really want to go there, it's almost a question of like, what was all the hard work for? Was it making someone else rich? Was it trying to strive for attention and significance and power because we feel like we didn't have enough? And if so, why did we feel like we needed to strive for those things? And it, it really does bring up the idea and the question of what is enough? What's enough power? What's enough money? What's enough significance? What's enough influence? Because to me, it seems like this whole, this, this game is a zero sum game because there's always more money you can be making. There's always more followers you can have. There's always more connections you can be making. There's always, you know, you know, instead of 10 xing your business, you can 20 exit or 30 exit. It just feels like if we go down this road and we take it to its logically justified conclusion, there's an element of, I would say, self-destruction and nihilism that's built into this. I really do think so. If we keep chasing the proverbial carrot, whatever it is for us, the chase never ends. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. I actually find articles like this really helpful for my mental health because over the past five to 10 years, as I've been developing my career and my businesses and all of that, there's often like a conflict that I felt within myself. And I think a lot of that comes down to things like the comparison trap that I mentioned and seeing so many people succeed in ways that I hadn't and wonder, was I doing something wrong? Or maybe had I just not optimized it right? Or was there something wrong with me? Was I not enough? Was I not doing enough? And there's so much, even now, I mean, it's still happening. I am less aware of it now because I've consciously moved away from it. In the past, I was really into people like Gary Vaynerchuk and even Brendan Burchard, who we talk a lot about. Jason and I really enjoy a lot of his work, but he does, for a large extent of his work, encourage people to hustle, to work really hard. And that appealed to me a ton. I I would say probably between like 2013 to 2016, I was entrenched in that and just like trying to learn how to make more money and how to optimize everything and and just like really trying to figure that out and support other people with it. And I still like helping people monetize and strategize and optimize, right? But now I'm trying to be careful about using those words because I don't want to do it at, at the expense of my mental health or somebody else's mental health. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It- it's really triggered me and it's triggered a lot of self-worth issues, right? Because what what starts to happen when you see other people succeeding is you compare yourself to them and you wonder, well, why aren't you getting those successes? And 
Are you not doing it right? Like just like all those things I said, and and that can be incredibly detrimental and draining too. Because then I think that's a huge part of the hustle culture is it's like trying to keep up with the Joneses. And when the Joneses are posting on Instagram and all of this, you just think, I got to do that too. Or, oh, I should just follow them. And they must have a formula. And a lot of people want to sell their formulas to you. And over the years, I when I see stuff like that, I hide it. Like I press the mute button on Instagram or I turn off the ads on Facebook and I tell Facebook, I don't want to see stuff like this anymore. I unsubscribe from newsletters. Currently in my life, that does not serve me. And I think part of that is not just how I've developed mentally and emotionally over the past few years, but it's also that I've spent so much time doing things and it didn't really do that much for me. It didn't bring me nearly as much money as I was promised. And it didn't change my life in a positive way. It actually led me to overwork myself, to drain myself, to feel burnt out. And I don't want to feel that way. There's a big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that a lot of people are promising. And I think it comes down to, and I've been thinking about this a lot, and it doesn't mean you have to love it every single second of the day. I want to smash that myth really quickly of this idea that I, you know, you have to find something that you're so in love with doing that What's the traditional phrase? Find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. I think that's kind of bullshit, to be honest, because there are days you can really love something, but there are some days where things are really tough and you got to gut it out and you really, really got to find deeper powers to make it through certain days. However, I do think there is an element of truth in that where I think if you're doing something to keep up with the Joneses, as you said, Whitney, or keep up appearances or meet influential people or be part of an elite clique in your industry or make a lot of money or do whatever the thing is. You know, if those things aren't happening and you're busting your ass and you're working 80 hours a week and you're not seeing your loved ones and you're losing sleep and you're not taking good care of your health, your mental health, your physical health, your your spiritual health, it's almost as if you put all this time and effort and work and sweat and blood and tears, and then you don't get the thing you want, whether that's a certain number or a certain number of followers, whatever the thing is. And then it makes me question, how much do you actually love your craft? Because I think there's another gear, there's another layer that when you are really passionate and you really have a deep love for your craft, whatever it is that you're doing, that even if the quote, rewards or the pot of gold at the end of the proverbial rainbow doesn't show up, you still have a love for what you're doing. Joseph Campbell, who we love to reference, I love to reference here on the podcast, one of my favorite authors of all time, in his book, uh, Reflections on the Art of Living, he said, if you chase money and money doesn't show up, you have nothing left. But if you have a vocation, a career, a craft that you love, Money will come and go, but you always have the thing to focus on. You always have your craft, your vocation, the thing that you're a student of something that you love. There's a love affair with that. And then money flows in, money flows out, but you're not dictated by the money. And I feel like I've chased money a lot in my career. Fuck yes, I have. And I know a lot of people that are chasing money. You know, I I think we've alluded to this. I think we talked about this maybe in the title, in some previous episode, maybe titles and identities. No, no, no. It was, it was the episode about fake it till you make it about fake gurus, about the guru dumb episode. The experts. The experts. Thank you. Yeah. I love the way you say guru, by the way. Guru? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I've noticed, this is my opinion, just a lot of people that will go to 
a Brendan event or a Tony event or a Dean Graziosi event or a Grant Cardone event or name any life coach transformational person. And they'll come out and they're like, I'm a coach now. And it's like, do you do this because you have a deep, sincere desire to actually help people with their suffering and their confusion and their struggle? Or are you doing it because you see dollar signs? In my opinion, a lot of people that are popping out that like, I'm a transformational expert. I don't care if I sound condescending right now. It's annoying to me. I'm a transformational expert. I'm a coach. I'm an expert. I'm a blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, cool. Are you doing this? You know, Be honest with yourself. Do you really want to help people? Or are you doing this because like, okay, I can enroll three people and make $90,000. Just be fucking honest about it. And I am getting fired up because it pisses me off when I scroll through Instagram, these hordes of people that are like coaches. And I'm like, what? How long have you been doing this? Like, what? Why are you doing? I don't care about how long. I'm like, why? What is your actual motivation here? Because if it's just to cash in and make money and get attention and significance and feel good about yourself because you did something with your life. It's not actually about helping people. And I honestly feel, yes, I'm fired up because I want to call bullshit bullshit. And in health, wellness, well-being transformation, there's a whole lot of people that when I get an intuitive hit on them and I dig under the hood, I'm like, you're not doing this because you want to help people. You're doing this because you see the dollar signs and you want to cash in. And it's an icky feeling. Yep. I mean, I think from a spiritual perspective, we need to remind ourselves that we're all on different journeys with our awareness. And some people are just at different places than we are. And we also can't judge someone without really digging in deeper. And somebody might not be willing to admit their motives yet, or they might be not aware of them. Yeah. Or so seeped into the culture. And that was part of my motivation for doing this episode is I've certainly been seeped in the culture. And one thing I've been spending a lot of time examining this year is my relationship with social media because I feel really conflicted as somebody who's been and still is daily. I'm, I'm considered an influencer and I that word makes me cringe. I have, a, I have a lot of negative associations with it. Yes. And I generally use that word whenever it works to my advantage, to be frank. Um, but, you know, I just do a lot of research around that. And one of the things that I do as as a kind of a side passion project, I don't want to use the term side hustle. I'll say side side passion project. I really love helping people figure out their social media strategies and not just from a place of making money, but from a place of of making a difference in the world and serving. And that has ultimately always been my motive. But I found myself getting carried away with the hustle culture. I found myself getting and buying into the girl boss mentality and that woke side of, of the capitalistic mentality. And then you just think, well, hey, why not? Like, why not make money? I deserve to make money and this and that. And I'm more drawn to, on a deeper level, the spiritual side of things. I, I just, I want to do something for intrinsic value-driven reasons. And I think a lot of people do, but when everybody around you, or I shouldn't say everybody, but like when there's this culture around you, encouraging you to kind of take advantage of people and like, hey, it's okay. It's okay to do this. You know, one of the things that came up in my research and and this is kind of obvious, but <laughs> there is a lot of research actually that shows that Americans associate busyness and stress with prestige and status. 
And I think the same thing is true with money. It's like if I can say that I'm this coach and I'm charging all of this money, it's like you're trying to get some sort of external validation, which is ultimately about being perceived as prestigious and having a high status. And I've done a lot of work around. That's actually a huge passion of mine is trying to understand all of that. And I've been developing a whole new program on this separate from Wellevator. And and this idea of status is so fascinating to me because I found myself in that too. I think a lot of us, I think it's a big millennial thing. That book Selfie, which we referenced months ago in in some episodes, is really interesting about how certain people around my age range especially have been raised to be super drawn to status. But then I, I read a separate book. And actually, I brought this up in our episode with Chris Gillibo, who talks a lot about hustle and encourages hustle in a lot of ways. And there's a wonderful book called called Status Anxiety, I think. I'll put yes. it in the show notes. You've referenced it in a previous yes. episode as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, with Chris Gillibo is when I talked about it. That's a fascinating book because it gets into the history of it. And I think it's so important for us to understand the history, whether it's the recent history like of our lifetimes, but also the long-term human history and how status has been something that's incredibly important to us as human beings. It's very like primal desire to fit in, to be accepted by the group, to not be ostracized. It's part of our survival. And so my heart goes out from like a compassionate Buddhist perspective if I can look for the the goodness in everybody. I'm reading a book by Pema Chodron right now and one of her key points across all of her work, but in this book especially, which is called Welcoming the Unwelcome, I think is what it's called. It's I think it's her most recent book that she's written. She talks about how important it is for us to always see the goodness in everybody, even if they've done something horrible. And she pointed out how even in prisons, the inmates would learn about each other and see the goodness within themselves, like in and their peers in the in in the prisons, despite that they've done horrible things. That doesn't mean that somebody isn't good deep down. It's just that they made decisions out of some driving factor that could have been a snap judgment. I mean, some horrible things happen. Some, some moments of rage can drive us to do horrible things. Does that mean that we're not good overall? I guess it it depends. Maybe th- there are some extreme f- examples, but certainly in this case that you're bringing up, Jason, of, of people that are trying to capitalize and position themselves as experts and coaches and gurus and whatever else. I guess like if I if I really examine it, what I see is somebody who's striving to get validation and striving to survive financially. And they're just like, caught up in this culture that perpetuates that and rewards that, really. Yeah. And I guess, first of all, yes, Whitney, having compassion for self and other is an ongoing process of discovery, I think, as we go on as humans. And, And it's a crucial one. To me, I think it's more about, and I know that in some ways, I suppose, I don't know if harsher is the right word, but in sometimes I just lose my patience with people and I'm just like, I'm just gonna call you on your bullshit. And, you know, to one degree or another, that's been good in some ways in my life and other ways not good. But I've noticed in not only taking these transformational workshops or these coaching programs or or talking to a lot of our colleagues and and associates in the well-being industry, I think that there are a lot of 
predatory practices, to be honest with you. You know, one example that I see is people will take a transformational or coaching program, empowerment program, they'll come out of it. And then whoever the leader is or the teacher or the person at the top of that hierarchy who's leading it will be like, okay, now go enroll clients and you know, you hold your value and make sure you retain your value. And it's this pressury tactic to make people, to pump them up, which I think in a lot of ways, people do need more self-esteem, especially people that are perhaps reticent to claim their worth. But what I see a lot in a lot of these programs is, and I'll say it's predatory because it's in a way, in some ways, perhaps taking advantage of a person's weakness and saying, you need to charge more, you know, don't worry about your lack of experience, you know, go out there and do it. And then they go out and they enroll people for, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 coaching programs. And they don't have the life experience or the training to back up what they're offering, but they got the money. So they feel like they're a success as a result, just because they enrolled someone. And I say predatory because I think it is in a way taking advantage of people. And for me, I'm just very... I'm very open-minded, but I'm also coming in with a healthy level of skepticism whenever someone tells me about a transformational program or a coaching program or a new thing, because if I get any whiff of that kind of hypnotic, I don't know, I guess, I don't want to call it brainwashing, but yet it's just, there's a predatory element to a lot of it, Whitney, that I pick up on really quickly now that I didn't used to in the past. And when I get a whiff of that, it kind of goes back to the the advertising and the marketing and the girl boss thing. It's almost like this religious fervor or this experience of like, come be with us, be with this group. You'll be successful. You'll be famous. You'll be noteworthy. You'll be known. And it does go to our primal desires to have safety and have resources and be clicky. And like it or not, there still is a hierarchy in human civilization that that is being reinforced continually. I think what we're talking about is this idea of status and this idea of hustle, this idea of overworking oneself and aligning with specific people in our industry or in society is just reinforcing hierarchy is really what it is to me. Yeah. And I think I can agree with a lot of this and it's very manipulative. And then it also makes me think like there is a hierarchy too, because the people that are encouraging other people to hustle and grind are benefiting from it. Like I read in that article about the girl boss, was it girl boss or no, it was um, one of the other ones, the New York times perhaps where the people that are perpetuating this hustle culture, often the, the ones that are benefiting from it financially. And so we're being manipulated in a lot of ways to buy into that. And I think a lot of these budding coaches, these, these newbie coaches or inexperienced people that start coaching programs, they're pulled into it and they might actually go and pay for a certification. I've been drawn to sign up for coaching certification programs before and haven't yet. I mean, sometimes I'm like, huh, I wonder if people would take me more seriously if I was certified as a coach because I take coaching very seriously and I want to, this is like a long path for me. It's not a get rich quick scheme. But, you know, looking at the marketing behind some of these certification programs, and the same could be true with the culinary world, Jason, or the the nutrition or the like health coaching businesses like there's those are expensive programs. They're usually on average like ten thousand dollars to get certified. in Absolutely. Something. Right. And then you wonder like, OK, like 
Is it just that these people running the certification programs, are they just benefiting and they're manipulating the people in the programs to figure out how to make their money back? And that's why they're charging so much. And it's like, there's like a long, <laughs> there's a lot of responsibility behind. It's not all just like, it's not like somebody just wakes up one day and is like, I'm going to go sell a $50,000 coaching program just so I can make money. Like they were somehow influenced by somebody else who might have benefited off of that as well. And so somebody who is trying to find their place in the world and trying to get by financially. I mean, we look at MLMs and oh, I'm boy. not sure how comfortable you are, Jason, but I feel like you were drawn mm. into an MLM. And from my perspective, it seemed like you were mostly driven out of the promise of making money. Is that right? Well, it was multiple things. It, yes, it absolutely was the money because at that point, I had a couple of long-term business deals that had fallen by the wayside and I, I really needed the cash. So yeah, absolutely. The other side of it too was that the, the more that I learned about the company, I really did think that their products and their sourcing and what they were doing was pretty on the up and up the more that I learned about them. But here's the biggest thing is I was so worried about money with, again, with a downturn in my business and some other deals that went south and, and a colleague friend of mine came along and said, do this with me. And I had resisted over the years, dozens and dozens of MLM pitches over the years. And something in my intuition told me not to do this. And I said, yes, anyway. And then eight months into doing it, I was like, nope, I'm done. And you and I have had this conversation a lot over the past week of trusting our intuition. You know, I, I know I've brought it up with you with a few deals that you and I have had come across the the table recently. If my heart and my gut are saying don't do it, I am now paying closer attention to that than I ever ever have before because I have so many life examples, including this MLM, of my intuition saying, dude, just don't do this. It's not for you. And I said yes anyway. And then yeah, eight months down the road, it, my gut and my heart, it was like, dude, this isn't, we told you this. Why, you know, and it's fine. I'm not beating myself up for saying yes, but I think the moral of this to me at least is if you are getting a very strong hit from your intuition, whether it's a yes or a no, it really is important, really is important to follow that in life. Yeah. Multi-level marketing is really fascinating to me and I feel really wary of it, like very skeptical. I don't like buying from that. I'm trying to think if I have ever, actually, you know what? Technically, I was involved with one because another oh. one of our mutual friends, Jason, was part of one for skincare and they make really amazing skincare. And I joined and I, I guess technically I joined under her, but I was joining mainly as an affiliate. I wasn't looking at it to, I mean, affiliate programs are kind of similar to MLMs, but not quite, you know, the same pyramid scheme. But technically, I think that's what it was. And what was really interesting and made me feel really good about that decision was that I remember watching what you went through with your multi-level marketing situation, Jason, like the pressure that you faced. And it was kind of like, it felt kind of cheesy to me, like, hey, I'm going to show you how to be successful with this. And like, you know, there'd be phone calls and strategy sessions and there were events and all. It was just like intense. Don't you think? And it, that just did not yeah. feel like in alignment with you as who you are. No, it's super intense. And I always joke, I didn't drink the Kool-Aid. And they really, really, really wanted me to drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, they did. And I was like, yo, I had to be honest about it. And 
okay, to me, here's what it was. It wasn't just the near religious fervor that I felt from some people about these products sometimes. But I think that it really depends on where a person is at in terms of their life experience, their awareness. And and for you and I being in this industry so long, I mean, that this October, it's going to be 15 years that I've been in food and nutrition and wellness. Like That's a long track record. I'm not doing a humble brag. It's a long time to be doing this shit. And I've had a lot of products. You know this, Whitney. We, You and I probably sample when the expos and the trade shows and the conferences and you and I do speaking and we, we travel and we do the things we normally do in a, in a non-pandemic year, we probably sample thousands of products a year. Not to I th- mention I think our, that's personal easy to tri- yeah, our personal trips to the grocery store account too. <laughs> we love to try things. Yeah, from supplements to protein powders to green powders to nootropics to biohacking stuff to, you know, I mean, you name it. Like we love it. We're fanatics about that. But with this MLM in particular, there was a culture and a marketing around it, around this is the greatest stuff ever, which, you know, God bless David Wolf and, you know, his thing about everything being the best ever. But at a certain point, the rhetoric is like, okay, yeah, dude, everything can't be the best ever because, you know, it just can't. Sorry. But the culture around it was, you know, this is bar none, the best products in the industry. And I beg to differ. I tried them. I used them. I think they're great. But do I think that they are the panacea in the wellness industry? No. And therefore, I couldn't get behind the marketing. I can't stand behind something from an ethical standpoint unless I use something and love it and know it. For me to get on and talk like it's the greatest thing ever, there's a disconnect for me. That to me goes to integrity and ethics. Is that if you want me to market a product or a service as the greatest thing in the industry, and in my heart, I don't feel that it is, that's unethical to me. Absolutely. I mean, I struggle with that a lot when it comes to essential oils. And I feel like it's such a shame that a lot of the top essential oil companies out there, or just like people's knowledge of essential oils is connected to MLMs, because essential oils are incredible. And there are more brands out there that aren't MLMs and there are brands, but there's some major essential oil brands that are part of MLMs. And I've always felt a little sad that they are MLMs because I feel like I just don't trust them. Like when something's an MLM, I immediately feel skeptical. That doesn't mean it's not good, right? Like this company you're referencing, Jason, it's not that their products weren't good. It's just to your point, that positioning that they're the best. And then you have all these essential oil companies trying to like position themselves as the best and their brands like Well Scent that Jason and I love. That's one brand I feel really loyal to because I've been using their essential oils for years and they're not an MLM and we've we've known the owner and, and it's just like there's so much passion behind it. And so, but there's also a ton of other brands. Like I'm not brand loyal to one essential oil company. I'm just shouting out Well Scent because of all of the brands out there, they're the one that I have the most affinity towards at the moment. I'm just not going to name them, but the other essential oil brands that are known for being MLMs, I feel sad because I wish that I could view them from a non-MLM standpoint, if that makes sense. And so when I entered in to the relationship with this skincare company, I wasn't looking at it as an MLM standpoint, even though technically it was. And then what was really neat is they actually decided to stop being an MLM and now they're not anymore. And I thought that was in so much integrity and it made me love the brand even more because I was already a fan of their products. But just the fact that they were willing to like step back from that industry and say they're going to do things differently is amazing. 
And I'm not saying their name at this moment because I need to do a little bit of more research to see where they stand. But last I heard, they were completely revamping their company to no longer be in an MLM. And I was like, this is awesome. I've never heard of that happening. I've never heard of a multi-level marketing structure reverting to something. I've never heard that before. Yep. That's fascinating, Whitney. Yeah. You well, know, once I do my research, I will revisit this and tell you how I'm feeling about them. But I still use their products pretty frequently. And, you know, this is the thing with, I'm just saying, it comes back to the manipulation side of things is that I try to be very careful about my motives for promoting products because I don't want anybody to feel like I'm in it for the wrong reasons. I think I have been. And I think, Jason, you know, you've experienced this as well. When times get tough financially, it feels like very tempting to promote something just to get paid for it, just to make that's money right. from it. And that's, I, right. that's what I'm saying. When we get triggered by other people and the things that other people are doing, it's a really great opportunity for to, us to look within ourselves. And my heart goes out to anybody who's like trying to be a coach or joining an MLM, because if their motives are similar to ours and our experiences, like we've been there too. We know what it's like to do something and feel drawn to something because you know, you're in a place of scarcity. And I think a lot of that's happening right now. I think there's a lot of businesses that are growing because during this pandemic, a lot of people are feeling that pressure of uncertainty, even if it's always there, it just feels so strong. And that leads me back to a couple other things just, you know, before we kind of wrap on this subject matter in specific, there were two other articles that I wanted to address on the subject matter. Another one is from the New York Times, and it was called The Busy Trap. And busy is a word that I get very triggered by (laughs) because I feel like it is such a superficial word. And it just drives me nuts when I hear people use it. Like, Or it's also, there's so many synonyms for it. Like, things are crazy right now is like a phrase that's synonymous to busyness. It's like, hey, sorry, you know, I haven't been able to do this or that because my life is crazy. And it's like, I get so triggered by that term, like just as Jason was getting triggered about the coaching. (laughs) Like I have to bite my tongue to not say anything when somebody says they're busy or that their life is crazy. Cause I'm like, yeah. I call bullshit on that. Like that's my current thing is like, I just feel like it's such an excuse, but then I have to have compassion for why somebody's using that term. And this article is really interesting. A couple parts of it that I found most fascinating were this one, which is busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. It makes you feel important, sought after, and put upon. And another line was, wonder whether all this histrionic exhaustion isn't a way of covering up the fact that most of what we do doesn't matter. Whoa, that ding, ding, ding. (laughs) (laughs) I actually didn't know the definition. The histrionic exhaustion, covering up things that don't really matter. No, covering up the fact that what we do doesn't really matter. I mean, yeah, that's damn. You want to talk about the truth meter being hit? That is Mm -hmm. legit. It's Look, I think there's a balance here, Whitney, of having deep compassion for ourselves and others. And also the quote, the James Baldwin quote that I love so much, which is, 
if I love you, I have to make you aware of the things you don't see. And so calling people in on their bullshit, I want to be called in on my bullshit. Are you kidding me? The people that I know, love, and trust, when they call me in and say, hey, are you aware like this might be motivating you or this is how you're showing up or you're acting out of desperation, you're acting out of fear? Fuck yeah. Like, please call me on that. And I think there's a balance here of like a lot of people, we've done it, right? Like, it, again, it's virtue signaling. Oh, you know what? I wish I could hang out, but I can't because I have a podcast and then I have an interview with with Oprah and then, you know, I'm hanging out with Marianne Williamson and then I'm actually going to go have a sleepover with Deepak Chopra and we're going to roast marshmallows out on his patio. Like, for fuck's sake, we're all just wanting acceptance, approval, significance, and some sort of love. I mean, I think this at the deepest source, what does this come down to? It comes down to wanting to be loved, right? Look at me. I'm important. I matter. What I'm doing in the world matters. But we run ourselves ragged chasing acceptance, chasing approval, chasing people's love. And all of us have to become more aware of whenever we are desperately seeking people's love, attention, and approval. Because I think we all, as human beings, we are apt to do that. We are apt to do it. Absolutely. And and I guess part of my mission with this episode is, is kind of like this woke mentality. Right? It's like, we want you to wake up and really examine these elements of yourself because sometimes we're doing things and saying things and making decisions, living our lives as a whole based on superficial motivations that have a ripple effect, not just within your own life, but on other people. I mean, if you think about it, let me put it this way. Like when I examine why I get so triggered by that busy term, it's because it feels like somebody else is saying to me that I'm not a priority. It's often used in that, that context. It's like, interesting. interesting. Hey, sorry, I didn't get back to you sooner. I've been really busy. And it's like, oh, so you're trying to say that your life and all of the things going on are more important than your friendships or your business partners, right? And that's an assumption there. But if we really strip away, that person is also saying that their desire to feel important is more important than showing that I'm important to them. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of words of importance in there, right? But yeah, yeah. You see what I'm saying? It's like, I do. Hey, you don't feel important right now because I want you to know how important I am. And that feels so selfish. And it's like, it's so triggering to me because, again, it's not that I don't do, I'm sure I do this in my own way and I'm really trying to pay more attention. Again, we're all in our different paths of awareness. It's, it's not meant to come across as a judgment, it's meant as a question. It's like, and noticing my own trigger, recognizing with what it brings up within myself and how I feel when somebody uses that word busy to me. I mean, it was like somebody said this the other day, and actually this came up. There's two examples. One is that yesterday somebody said they didn't respond to my text for a few days. And then like yesterday, they finally did. And they're like, oh, I, I'm just seeing your text now. Sorry. Things have been really crazy. Yeah. Horseshit. In my head, I'm thinking bullshit. Horseshit. Yeah. You fucking I know. I know for a fact that you're on your phone all the time. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? It's yeah. like, really? Do you really want me to believe that you're so busy that you don't even notice the notification pop up? Now, granted, it could be possible if you have notifications turned off on your phone, hey, maybe you're doing it for your mental health, but that would be so much more honest. Like, hey, 
sorry I didn't respond. I didn't see because I had do not disturb on because I'm trying to spend less time on my phone. I'd be like, awesome. I totally get it. Or someone saying, hey, I'm so sorry I didn't respond to you. I saw your message a few days ago, but you know what? I felt really overwhelmed and I just didn't have the capacity to respond. Like, I crave that type of honesty. And, you know, like there's still a pending text message I sent to a friend of mine a couple days ago, and she still hasn't responded to me as of the time I'm recording. And I feel this like resentment in me because I bet you anything that she's going to respond one day and say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry I didn't get back to you. I've been so busy or whatever her version of that, because she says that to me all the time. And it's so sad because now I'm at a place where I expect her to tell me she's busy. I have to like prep myself for her saying that. And I hate that, you know, that's such a like icky feeling to like anticipate your friend giving their common excuse to you every time. And then what happens is I, as a friend, don't want to reach out to that person anymore. I don't trust them anymore. I don't feel safe with them. I don't feel an important or priority. And it starts to eat away at the friendship, which is sad. And I think the only way to really deal with that is to have compassion for them, to see their inner goodness, to be patient, to examine what brings it brings up for yourself, all of these things we've been talking about. But just because I know I should be doing that doesn't mean that I'm the perfect at it. I still get triggered by these things. And Jason, you do too. We were just talking about this yesterday with somebody who you've been annoyed who hasn't responded to you. I feel like I really do give people a lot of rope. I do. I feel like I'm a really forgiving person and I'm I'm a really patient person in in some ways and I have a lot of understanding and a continually evolving understanding of human psychology and and what motivates people and, and certainly I'm examining that for myself and sometimes I think about going back to school and becoming a clinical psychologist because the human mind fascinates me so much. But Apropos. That's so funny because so do I. Like, I would love to go and get like a degree as a therapist. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, it's been coming up a lot for me. I've really been thinking a lot about that. Which me is, too. It's I, yeah. We haven't talked about this. It's so funny. Well, here we are talking about it. The same thing. <laughs> um, oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To get back to that in a second, but I want to go back to this person who I've known for almost a decade now, and. and we're not extremely close. We were closer in many years past and his career has evolved and changed and, and he's a well-known person. And yeah, I, I was reaching out to him to possibly come on the show here. And, you know, I've sent three texts in a row and three texts spaced out over the course of the pandemic. And again, I don't know what he's going through. I know he's putting out content though, because I see the content he's putting out. So again, it's one of those things where like, I know you're making content, so you're checking your phone. And it's one of those things where I hope that he does get back to me because I what I don't want to have happen, Whitney, and I feel like this is a thing that happens all too commonly, is that people will ignore texts or emails, and then you'll see them in person, and they'll act like nothing's happened. Or, like, oh, hi, it's so yeah, good to see you. And I'm like, hey, yeah. motherfucker, how about those three fucking texts? Yeah, hi, or, good to see you too. Or you know, about, they don't even acknowledge it. How about when... The next time you hear from them is them asking you for a favor. I want to extract a tooth with no anesthesia out of their mouth is what I want to do. Or it's and it's always mm. like, Mm-mm-mm-mm. hey, I know we haven't talked in a little while. A lot's been going on in my life. I've got a new book coming out and wanted to send you a copy of it. And you're like, would you mind promoting it? It's like, e- no. 
Mm-hmm. No. So anyway, again, yeah. I like to give, I do love to give people the benefit of the doubt. We have no idea what a person is struggling with, going on with. But at a certain point, after a certain number of emails, phone calls, FaceTimes, or texts, if you don't get back to me, I do switch into a mode of, you know what? Fuck off. Like with love, fuck off. Like there's a certain number I get to where I'm just like, I'm done. I'm on the edge of being with that person. I'm on the edge. I'm on the edge. I'm just being honest about it. Well, sometimes we need to talk these things through and reflect on them more before we're taking action. Because if we have learned anything through the pandemic, we realize that things are less in our control than we realize. And we don't know what's happening in the world with other people until they share it with us or it's on the news. There's just a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of stress. And I think it's just always a great opportunity to come back to compassion. Well, I want to make sure that we get to that juicy article that I shared, even though I feel like we've covered a lot of different angles. There may be some more things to uncover here. So I'm going to read some of my favorite excerpts from this article that I told you earlier is really, really well written. And I was, it's a long one. It was on BuzzFeed. And the title of it is How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. This is what I mean, Jason. Like, I feel like you struggle with burnout a lot more than I do. Yeah, I do. So that's what I mean. Like, you have a lot of characteristics that are more millennial than what are you, Gen 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 X? X. Okay. All right. So I'm just going to go through all the excerpts. But if there's one that's really appealing to you, Jason, feel free to to interject and I'll pause for you. But just for sake of time, (laughs) for expediency's sake, because don't forget, At the end of every episode, we do our new thing, which is the frequently asked queries. And I want to make sure that we have some time and energy left for that today. Okay. So this BuzzFeed article starts off. Well, actually, I don't know exactly where in the article. I just take notes. I often copy and paste a lot of notes from from articles. I don't remember exactly where they were. (laughs) So don't take this in in full context of it because it's a really long article. The first excerpt starts off, why can't I get this mundane stuff done? Because I'm burnt out. Why am I burnt out? Because I've internalized the idea that I should be working all the time. Why have I internalized that idea? Because everything and everyone in my life has reinforced it, explicitly and implicitly, since I was young. Students were convinced that their first job out of college would not only determine their career trajectory, but also their intrinsic value for the rest of their lives. And yet their lives don't feel at all like the dream that has been promised. I never thought the system was equitable. I knew it was winnable only for only a small few. I just believed I could continue to optimize myself to become one of them. The psychological toll of realizing that something you've been told and came to believe yourself would be, quote, worth it, worth the loans, worth the labor, worth all of that self-optimization, isn't. One thing that makes that realization sting even more is watching others live their seemingly cool, passionate, worthwhile lives online. The photos and videos that induce the most jealousy are those that suggest a perfect equilibrium Work hard, play hard has been reached. 
When we don't feel the satisfaction that we've been told we should receive from a good job that's, quote, fulfilling, balanced with a personal life that's equally so, the best way to convince yourself you're feeling it is, is to illustrate it for others. Our steadfastness hasn't made us more valuable. Exhaustion means going to the point where you can't go any further. Burnout means reaching that point and pushing yourself to keep going, whether for days or weeks or years. Much of self-care isn't... Let me start over. (laughs) Much of self-care isn't care at all. It's an $11 billion industry whose end goal isn't to alleviate the burnout cycle, but to provide further means of self-optimization. At least in its contemporary commodified iteration, self-care isn't a solution. It's exhausting. We engage in self-destructive behaviors or take refuge in avoidance as a way to get off the treadmill of our to-do list. The best way to treat it is to first acknowledge it for what it is, not a passing ailment, but a chronic disease, and to understand its roots and its parameters. Hmm. It's interesting because this whole marketing of self-care I think has exploded the way that it has over the past 10 years because it's almost as if people are trying to delay the inevitable. I'm going to go for a massage and I'm going to go for a float tank session. I'm speaking to myself here too, in my experience. I'm going to go get, you know, a foot bath. I'm going to go to the Korean spa. I'm going to take a holiday in Bali or Tulum or Hawaii. But you come back and it's the same mentality of grinding yourself into the ground to try and prove yourself. And so in a way, these self-care services and products and practices aren't actually being designed to get anyone off the treadmill. They're just creating delay switches and delay mechanisms so that you burn out later. (laughs) I think if anything, a lot of them are just delaying the inevitable, which is that at some point, you're probably going to mentally, physically, or emotionally crash from working like you do. They're just delay mechanisms. Yeah. And that actually makes me think about some of the people that we know who are obsessed with self-care and wellness. And we're really into that as well. But there are some people that are, I mean, especially when it comes to, um, what's the term? Not human optimization, but um, biohacking. Yeah. You know, like it seems to me that a lot of that, the root of people's desires to biohack, and again, us included, is like, well, how can we live the longest and be as successful as the longest and get enjoy life and extend pleasure for the longest? You, Jason, wrote a whole book about longevity. You had a TV show about longevity that's, that's right. like deeply rooted in the work that you do. That's right. And I wonder if that's, is that, at the at its root, a fear of death? Is it like, I don't want to address mortality, so I'm going to see how I can optimize myself to live for as long as possible and to be strong mentally and physically and emotionally for as long as possible? And it, it becomes kind of an obsession and it takes up so much time and money too. And there's almost like a stress in it that I feel from some people that this obsession you know, to always get things right. That perfectionist mentality is rampant in the wellness communities. Yes, it is. And that I wonder too, is it's like, 
at what expense? Literally spending money as an expense, your time is an expense, but it's stressful. So is it is it counterbalancing itself? I mean, I think if it gets to the point of obsession, yes. I, th- I think if one has a healthy relationship to these things in the sense of if I don't take my supplements and don't do the infrared sauna or don't do the cold plunges or don't do the breath work or don't do the meditation, like I'll still be okay today. And I say this too, because I have an obsessive personality. I always have ever since a kid, I was a kid. I mean, as little as I can remember, my mom would tell me I'd find something that I would like or enjoy and be obsessed with it, learn as much as I could about it, do it every day until I'd get burnt out with it and move on to whatever was next. But in terms of wellness and well-being and self-care, absolutely, Whitney, I think it can, be, it can become beyond just being a fan of it into an absolute obsession that if I don't do my regimen every single day, I'm going to lose my shit. It certainly gives us a lot to examine. I hope that the listener is taking away either some really interesting things to consider for yourself or and just simply enjoyed going along the ride with us. <laughs> this is not something that's a one and done subject matter for sure. As we said at the beginning, we've talked a lot about hustle culture. It's clearly something that we get triggered by, that we're interested in, and clearly passionate about alternatives to the word busy and that busy mentality and perfectionism as we've talked about. And it's interesting, too, because it's taking a look at our own motivations and taking a look at the culture that we've been so steeped into. And actually, it's part of the reason that I, I try not to use the word wellness to describe my work. I, I like, prefer the word well-being. And that came out of an article that I read. I think you might have sent it to me initially, Jason, which was the one part of the, the suggestions that the article had. I can't remember what it was called. It, Exactly. But it was about the wellness industry and the word wellness and how, you know, it was often a bit on the superficial side or really like commodified. Uh, one of the the end points of that article really stuck with me. And that was we should be talking about well-being, not wellness. And that had a huge impact on me because, as I've said, my conscious goal, my conscious motivation is really to not just improve myself and feel my best, but to help other people do the same thing. And then examining my desires to improve and my desires to optimize and think like, well, what is that all about? And like, am I doing this for, quote, the right reasons? And is this really good for my mental health? And, you know, Jason and I have struggled a lot mentally when it comes to the vegan world. And we often have discussions about how we want to distance ourselves from vegan the vegan industry, because that doesn't always feel good for our mental health. There's so much perfectionism steeped in veganism. And I think the more that I examine it, the more that I want to reframe my relationship to that world as well. And the same thing goes with wellness. I mean, I want to touch upon in another article, the importance of of diversity in wellness too. We've, we've kind of gotten into that in some of our recent episodes regarding Black Lives Matter and cultural appropriation and how we need to make sure that everybody is represented here. And a lot of wellness is steeped in in white culture and elitism, and it's out of financial reach for a lot of people, or it feels like it's not something that they can relate to, whether they're just not seeing themselves represented, or it feels 
like it's uh, beyond who they are or something, right? Like I think it's so important for us to have diversity and race and gender and age and financial means and education and so many things. And so one of my big aims with this episode was that we talk about these things and are honest and transparent about our own experiences and our current thoughts with it and use that as a way for us, me and Jason, but also you, the listener, to unravel the things that we've been doing in our lives. So with all that said, unless you had something else to add, Jason, should we dive into the frequently asked queries part of uh, our show? Ah, yes. A little frequently um, asked queries. <laughs> uh, for those who might be new to our show or haven't listened to some recent episodes, we started doing this, which is where we pluck from the queries that people type in on websites like Google Analytics or the queries people type in on Google to come to our website, which we're able to track through Google Analytics for better or for worse and maybe a little creepy. We did a whole episode on this and the the creep factor, the data privacy side of it. Uh, we'll link to that. We have one episode with Paul Jarvis, who runs an amazing company called Fathom Analytics, which is an alternative to Google Analytics. And um, then we did a separate episode uh, a few months after Paul's where we just, and that was the most recent one where we talked about the our relationship with Google Analytics and how that led us to a new segment on our show that we've been testing out and finding a lot of joy in. And it's kind of like a little comic relief or um, pulling some interesting things that may not have anything to do with the subject matter of these episodes, but just something that we want to talk about. And then I also use this cool website called Exploding Topics, which shows you like the hot topics online right now, like what people are searching for. And I often find really interesting subject matters from that. Before I get into it, another thing that I want to start doing, Jason, which we kind of sprinkle into our episodes, but I want to be more intentional about it, is shouting out really wonderful brands and the people behind them. And the one brand I got an email from right around the time that we were recording. And I just like, it made my heart feel good. And I thought, I want to give this person more shout out. It's a brand called Canopy Verde. And they make my favorite fashion accessories. They make bags. I'm obsessed with their backpacks specifically. That's what I use to carry around my laptop when I'm traveling or just going outside the house. But I, I use that backpack just to store things in general. It's just so cute. I have two of them, actually. The same model, but different model, if that's the right term for this. I don't know. But the same style, I should say, with the different colors. I love it so much. And then they have a crossbody bag that I've been using for many years and a few others. Uh, plus, they just sent me some really nice masks, which I think are made from organic cotton. What's nice about Canopy Verde is that they are it's a female owned business based in, I think, Brooklyn, somewhere in New York City. And she's just the most delightful, sweet person, super generous. It's all vegan. She makes eco-friendly. She uses eco-friendly materials like organic cotton. And she's so creative. She does great colors. I just absolutely love them. And an email from her popped in my inbox. She's um, on Etsy. Sadly, by the time this episode comes out, this opportunity will have passed. But there's like a some sort of like award that they're up for. Oh, it's called the Annual Design Awards. And the the submissions close or the voting closes before this episode actually comes out. 
I'm going to vote for them, but I also thought it'd be nice to shout them out. And I want to be more intentional about that, Jason, because there's so many great brands. We talked about Well Sent, for example, which is another wonderful female-run, mission-driven business. And is there anybody off the top of your head that you want to shout out, Jason? It's hmm. been in your heart recently. You know who's been really wonderful and, and sends me care packages just out of the blue? And you were the one who turned me on to this brand is Great Nola, which you <gasps> first turned me you on get, to. You get care packages from them? That's right. Hey, if you could right. see me, I'd be pointing my thumb at, well, I am. I, right now, I'm literally pointing my thumb at myself, which is my little signal that, hey, I want to be included. Okay. I will include you in the next care package. Oh my gosh. Great Nola is phenomenal. Yes. They have an activated charcoal and a matcha granola. Oh that gosh, it's so Whitney good. turned me on to, there's a, a really sweet little family run corner store in Hollywood called the Hollywood Supermart. Any Angelinos, anyone visiting Los Angeles, support Eddie and his family and those great people there. Well, it's Paul, Lara, and Eddie. There's, yes. So Paul and Eddie are brothers, and then Lara is the wife, and they have kids that participate in the shop. It's such a sweet place. It's like, it looks kind of run down from the outside just because of those little strip mall that they're in, but it's so amazing inside. It's like a little adventure because they're always adding really interesting things in there in addition to like your standard American food, like junk foods. <laughs> they sprinkle in like organic and vegan stuff. So I'm glad that you mentioned them too. And they do have great NOLA. Yeah. Great NOLA is, is the bomb. So Erica, the founder, really, really small business. They're based out of Northern California. Amazing superfood ingredients, super high vibe. They taste amazing. So yeah, everyone, if y'all are into granola, or maybe you're not into granola and you want to get into granola, check out Great Nola, support yes. Erica, another strong, ethical, female-run business. Love, love, love them. It's just a coincidence that we're talking about female-owned businesses here. And I think it's amazing about that endorsement, Jason, is that you love granola. And so for you to like really be fanatical about one specific brand, I know you still like Purely Elizabeth a lot too, right? It's one of your top granola brands. Is it is, it, it is, but I don't like to shout out the company. Why? Uh-oh. Oh, boy. <laughs> this might get uncomfortable. <laughs> Haven't had the best dealings with Elizabeth. Aww. I'm just oh, going to say really? that. Yikes. Yeah, I don't want to get into it. Oh, but it's too bad. Okay. I, it doesn't mean I won't support their products. I love their products, but... Oh. I also, if I have less than favorable or loving dealings with the person behind the brand, I tend not to shot them out. Oh, I'm the same way. So it's uh, like, I love what you create, but I don't yep. really dig you as a person. Oh, well, you know, and to each their so. own. I think it's sometimes, again, I'm just going to say it again and be a broken record to always extend compassion. And, and one thing I've learned, and it's been a very humbling experience is just because I don't have a good experience with someone, A, doesn't mean that's a permanently bad thing because things can shift and we never know what people are going through and what's driving their behavior. But B, I've had bad experiences with people that other people have great experiences with. And that's always like super humbling for my ego because I want to believe that like if something goes wrong for me, it goes wrong for everybody. For sure. For sure. But it's a subjective experience. It is. It is. All right. But fair enough. Good to know. And thank you for your transparency. And if this ever gets back to the company, you know, there's always an opportunity for things to shift. One last company, since you mentioned the word care package, I want to say that e Jason and I each got incredible care packages from LaCroix, which is certainly not a small business. 
And I'm very partial to Mad Tasty, which is our last shout out to LaCroix and, and Mad Tasty. And then we'll get into the frequently asked queries. But Mad Tasty is like my brand obsession. I just did a really cool project with them, which I will link to as soon as it comes out, assuming that it, I think it's going to be on their Instagram TV or something like that. But I love their sparkling water, their CBD. We've shouted them out before. They're like my number one. But I have to say that LaCroix sent us one of their new flavors and it's outstanding. And I'm also going to say that I felt like not so great about a lot of LaCroix flavors. In general, I, I feel like they're a little bit of a letdown. I'll be transparent. Uh, but every once in a while, they'll come out with a new flavor or I'll try a flavor I haven't had before and be pleasantly surprised. And this new one blew me away, but it's going to be a teaser because I don't want to say what it is because Jason hasn't experienced it yet. And if I say the name of the flavor right now before Jason's tried it, it'll ruin the surprise. And I'm a big fan of surprises. No spoiler alerts. This is a part one. Part two will be in a future episode. We'll find out if Jason loves this LaCroix favorite flavor as much as I do. And as soon as the cat's out of the bag, maybe we'll update the show notes. So if you go to podcast.wellevator.com and check out the show notes for this episode, you get links to all the articles and all the brands and everybody we talked about. If I remember, I will go and update the show notes with the flavor that we're talking about. It'll be like a little Easter egg or something. I don't know. But you have that to look forward to. It was a delight. I mean, Jason and I get a lot of products sent to us. Uh, we're very fortunate and privileged to be sent things for free to try. And it's actually rarer than you might believe to get a great care package. And when I got this package from LaCroix, A, the outside box is completely customized. It's so cool. And inside, I was like shocked at what they sent. So Jason, you have some a fun care package to look forward to whenever we have a physically distant meetup or something. Well, yeah, soon, soon, yes. very soon. Okay, let's get into some frequently asked queries and then I'm going to have dinner because it's dinner time for me. How about you, Jason? I'm Same? hungry too. <laughs> I'm hungry. All right. Um, hmm. I always try. What, what? You're probably in the mood for something funny just because the mood. Always, means, always. But I mean, I categorize them. So I, because I'm a nerd, I use Google Documents and I have spreadsheets where I keep track of all these things that we're talking about just to keep it all organized. And I actually categorize every query based on whether it is funny, interesting, or serious. So how about one of each, Jason? Please. Okay. Hmm. To do the, the selecting here. I think we've actually, in our previous episode, went over most of the funny. Oh, well, I'll just bring this one up. I thought it was kind of amusing. Is that for some reason... <laughs> One of the queries that showed up in Google Analytics was simply the word pierogi. Well. Like somebody typed the word pierogi and we were suggested as a as a website to go look at. Maybe because at some point word got out about my classic Vrubel family recipe for said pierogies. I love that you said word got out. Literally, you must have said the word pierogi on one of our podcast episodes. Like, it's not like somebody else, like, secretly is spreading the word that about. Could be. <laughs> have you heard about those Robel family pierogies? You need to get a recipe. Well, tell Maybe. us more. And also, I would love to know have you had a really great vegan pierogi? 
Yeah. So when I went vegan 22 years ago, my mom followed suit a couple months afterward. And over the years, she has successfully, along with my aunt Mary Lou, adapted a lot of our classic Polish from that side of the family, that's Polish side, family recipes and veganized them. And one of the things they did is they've successfully veganized pierogies and they are spectacularly good. We have vegan sour cream, vegan pierogies, vegan guompkis, which is also my nickname for your dog and my dog. I call them little stuffed cabbages. <laughs> they're round. They look like little stuffed cabbages to me. So, so Your from, dog especially. Yeah, she's definitely a stuffed, ca- a stuffed cabbage for sure with legs. So guompki, borscht, which is a beet soup, sour cream, guompkis, or I'm sorry, pierogies, pretty much every single non-vegan traditional Polish recipe, my mom has successfully veganized and they are delicious. How do you spell guompki? Because I can imagine the <laughs> the person who does our transcriptions must be like so stuck on this. I have no idea. How do you spell? Pierogies is hard to spell too, but how do you spell guompki? It's actually, it looks like golobki. Uh, so it, it's G. O-L-A, Golab, K-I, G-O-L-A-B-K-I, but it's pronounced Gwumpki. Huh, okay, see? An alternate spelling could be Golumpki, which is G-O-L-U-M-P-K-I, but again, no matter how it's spelled, it is Gwumpki. Got it. See, we got some fun trivia for you here on This Might Get Uncomfortable that you were not expecting. Part of our motivation for doing Frequently Asked Queries is to keep you to listen to the whole episode. I would be interested to see if anyone like fast forward to the final like five to 10 minutes just to listen. Like what if they hated everything else we talked about? (laughs) Here's the danger here too, is mentioning more Polish recipes like borscht and pierogies and guompkis is we on our charts today. So one thing that Whitney does in her brilliant research and analytics measuring is we have uh, something called Chartable that we have our podcast subscribed to and we get updates and we are trending in some really interesting countries. And for the first time today, I noticed on our chartable that we are trending in Poland in both the health and fitness and the mental health categories. And I thought, I wonder if it's because they're searching for pierogi recipes <laughs> and the fact that my name, my last name is a very common last name in Poland. And now, of course, we're mentioning Gwomki. So the poll, you know, hell, if we keep charting in Poland, I ain't going to argue. Yeah, but here's the thing is that the charts that we see on Chartable are specifically for Apple Podcasts, and that means that somebody is searching for things or finds us on Apple Podcasts specifically. It's not yet set up to search for like other things, as far as I'm aware. Fascinating. So I don't know if that's the case, but I think it's really cool every time I see like a new country showing up. We've been in like the top three pot of all podcasts on some really interesting countries, which is really neat. And this is a good time to remind you, the listener, to subscribe and to leave a review. If you're a fan of our work and you want to help spread the word, leaving reviews is incredibly helpful. We are so grateful for that. That helps other people find our show. It kind of validates the show. And as much as we talk about consciousness, we also enjoy getting validated just like anybody else. So Yeah. If you want to give us a little pat on the back virtually, that's a way to do it. You can also join our community at patreon.com. Patreon.com slash Wellevator is a way that you can support us with like a dollar or two a month. Financially helps us pay for some of our podcasting expenses. And we love to find ways to thank you and give you special perks. 
and you can also find us on social media. But usually when we talk about these things, that means that we're wrapping up. I promise two more queries. So we got a funny one. Hit me. What do you want next? An interesting or a serious? Interesting. Okay. Let's see here. Oh, the- <laughs> this one to me is funny, but also interesting. Like, why did somebody type this in? The query was how to catch someone creeping around your house. <laughs> that definitely falls what into the funny in? category. But very Not- interesting. Like, what? like they've already broken in. They've already gained entry to your home. And you want to catch them creeping because they've somehow gained entry without your knowledge or consent? (laughs) How to catch someone. Not how to prevent someone from breaking in your house. They've already gotten in, and I just don't want them creeping. Yep. Hmm. I don't have any advice for that, actually, by the way. (laughs) Like, I have pepper spray, lighting off maybe the fire alarms in your house to startle them, throwing cat or dog food and, and saying, attack! I don't know. Or you could pull a, a home alone and like set up all these traps and stuff. I mean, you could, you could. I feel like part of the reason that movie was such a success is that as kids, you're like fascinating about, you're fantasizing, is what I mean to say, about like catching a burglar. But that movie also, if you watch it as an adult, you're like, wow, this is kind of creepy. Like this kid's left alone by his parents who w- did not pay enough attention to him. To uh, remember to to take him them him with them on their big trip, but then this poor kid has to defend himself and the whole house from these burglars. Like, it's kind of crazy. What a crazy concept! It all this query also reminds me of a documentary series I just started watching. I recommend for anybody who's interested in cr- true crime, and I keep forgetting the exact name. Hold on, let me pull it up again. I'll be gone in the dark is the name of it. It's on HBO. It just started as of the time that we're recording. It's at the end of June. And it is really well done, as many HBO documentaries are. And it's also really creepy because it's a, a you know, I'm not trying not to spoil anything, but there, this idea of someone creeping around your house is something that comes up in this show. And this series is also interesting, Jason, because one of the, quote, main characters of this documentary was a podcaster. Mm. And mm. I think she had a pod. I'm, either she was just a guest on podcast or she had her own. She was known for her blog. And she had at least podcast appearances. I can't remember if she actually had her own podcast. But it's uh, fascinating from that standpoint as well. And that's all I'll say for now. The seri- One thing I don't like about HBO series is that they only release them once a week. So you can't binge watch them. And this is one of those series that I would have loved to binge watch. Maybe it's for the better, though. It's tough. It's uh, probably better to st- prolong your pleasure. That's and, true. And also not sit around for eight hours watching something when you should be working or sleeping. Delayed gratification. True. Yep. And I'm curious, anybody else listening who has also watched this docuseries, If you'd like to share anything, as long as it's not a spoiler, don't spoil it for me, for Jason or anyone else, because it's so easy to come across spoilers these days. And I try to protect myself from those at all costs. All right. One last query. We're going to have something serious. Okay. Uh, Huh. Well, this is one that I found today. I'm just curious what you, 
I just thought it was kind of profound and, and Jason might have something additional to add to it. The query was, certainty is the enemy of truth. Is that mm. a quote from something? Do we possibly say those exact words or quote somebody? Or do mm. we, we talk a lot about certainty. We talked a lot sure. about certainty. I don't remember saying that quote. Certainty is the enemy of truth. Well, if we acknowledge that uncertainty is a fundamental aspect of the reality we're living in, then certainty would be untruth. So it's kind of a, a self-evident or self-fulfilling quote. I mean, mm-hmm. we can't predict the future. We can't know what wants to be. We can't know what life has in store for us, despite all of our control and planning and evaluating and forecasting. So yeah, I mean, the part of the nature of this reality is we don't know what wants to be and we don't know what's going to happen. So in a way, yeah, certainty is certainty is an illusion. Mm-hmm. Certainty, that's a different way of phrasing it. Certainty is an illusion. Yes. Yep. Actually, it's funny you say that too, because I, I was putting some of those words into the the final edits of our ebook we talked about from chaos to calm. I use that term illusion in reference to certainty or control. It's interesting when I looked up that quote, certainty is the enemy of truth. There's two people that it's attributed to. One of them is Nipsey Hussle, who said, premature certainty is the enemy of truth. It's interesting, Mm. huh? Interesting. Hmm. Well, we'll have to go through our show notes to see where that came from exactly. But apparently we, we said something that led somebody to our website after searching for that. Well, anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode as a whole. I hope you enjoyed this segment of Frequently Asked Queries, which we are doing at the end of every episode, unless we have a mass of people telling us not to. And even if they did, I think we'd probably do it anyways, because I really like doing them, don't you? Yeah. I would just be like, yeah, we're going to keep doing it because it brings us pleasure. It does. And luckily for you, the listener, they're at the end of the episode. So if you don't like them, just don't listen to the end, you know, but there might be all sorts of little nuggets of wisdom that you're not expecting in here. So I can't imagine somebody wouldn't like this, but you never know. We enjoy feedback. So speaking of which, There are some really easy ways to get in touch with us. One is our website is the main hub. It's wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. There's a whole website with a blog and free resources and video trainings and all sorts of goodies for your well-being. And there's the podcast section, which is separate but equal. It's podcast.wellevator.com. You can get to it from wellevator.com. And as we mentioned, every episode has show notes. And what we would love is to hear from you either by going to the bottom of the show notes and writing a comment in the comments section. That's a great way to be part of the conversation. Or while you're on the website or just separately, you can find us on social media. All of our social media is under the handle at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. That's how you can reach both of us at the same time. You can comment on our social media posts. You can direct message us there, or you can find us individually. We each have our own separate accounts, but we like to hear from you together. That helps us keep everything in the same place and helps us communicate together as Whitney and Jason. So um, we'd love for you to be part of the conversation. And in addition to being able to direct message us privately, you can also email us at hello at wellevator.com. If you have anything that you'd like to add, suggestions, topic requests. If you want to write a testimonial in addition or instead of a review on iTunes, whatever you'd like to share, we would love to hear from you because having you part of this is really important to us. 
So with that said, thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to being connected with you in whatever means that happens to be. We look forward to having you listen to future episodes. If, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. You'll be notified when the episodes come out. We have them every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And so the next episode that you'll hear is our guest episode. And that's a really lovely one with our friend Maxwell Goldberg, who is an expert in organic living and wellness and well-being. And he's just such a fascinating guy. It was a really great conversation. So stay tuned for that coming out soon and lots more like that coming your way. And until next time, we're wishing you all the very best with your well-being physically, mentally, and emotionally. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.